3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people are make friends, I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but also to explain it all. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. So let me get this. Two world leaders speak on the phone for 90 minutes. And uh, tech buyers cheer the results, even though we don't even know what they are? Have relations between China and the United States gotten so strained that the mere act of a phone call gives the bull something to celebrate? Well, that's certainly how it felt, at, particularly at the opening, before this market took a serious turn for the worse. Dow losing 272 points, S&P declining 0.77%, and the Nasdaq sinking 0.87%, Apple having a lot to do with that. Even after the late afternoon down drift, most tech hardware stocks managed to hold up. As this industry has been collateral damage in the superpower tussle between the U.S. and China, nearly the whole group blossomed, except for Apple. Hmm. Me, I remain skeptical of any sort of detente here. Every time we've gotten optimistic, and many people do, about better relations with China since President Trump, we've been disappointed every time. A lot of people thought that uh, when Biden got in, uh, it would change. I don't see any way to reconcile, especially with the Chinese government embracing old-school authoritarian communism. However, that doesn't mean the situation can't momentarily improve. If if we can simply take the possibility of a step-up in tensions over Taiwan, the real worry off the table, then you get major relief in the semiconductor industry. Maybe that's what was happening this morning, which is very much hostage to the Taiwan Semi Corporation. This is a big chip manufacturer on an island that's run by a fragile government that's nevertheless fiercely hostile to the People's Republic of China. The semis were the leaders of the rotation by committee that seems to take place every single day during this downturn. Uh, and remember, it also leads behind a lot of other prominent groups. But That's September for you. That's why I keep telling you this. Do these Chinese good feelings rallies have staying power? Who knows? We didn't hear about a follow-up meeting. We didn't hear about any new commerce. We didn't hear about anything. We didn't even see much of a rally in the so-called China stocks with Boeing, the principal beneficiary of any camaraderie between our two nations, actually down more than three bucks. Chinese planes. Boeing has plenty of them. Judging by the stock, they've, well, it's judging by how the stock's doing, let's just say no dice. All right. On Monday, we'll see if this morning's tech rally can expand beyond beyond the hardware into all aspects of Tang of tech, including Fang. I like that Tang. My mom used to make that. I guess we probably weren't that doing well. You know, Tang is bad. It's nasty. Anyway, I fear that September just won't release its bearish grip on the stock narrative that easily. I just. There are a lot of people who think it will. I don't. Now, when is the sudden downturn and hard downturn In the stock of Apple, when a federal judge ruled that they must allow external links from their app store, links that let you buy their apps somewhere else. Now, that's a real blow to Apple's profitability, as the app store margins are huge. But Epic, the video game company on the other side of the lawsuit, wanted to reclaim more autonomy and keep more of its revenue. And the judge ruled in their favor, mostly. It's a complicated decision. Some people have been saying that it's not that bad. It's full of ambiguities. Uh, The judge explicitly says Apple's not a monopoly. That's a win for Apple. But she also ruled that they're violating California's unfair competition law. Big laws. I have no idea whether this will hold up. It's been a long time since I was at law school. What matters, though, is that this negative news was not baked into the stock coming in this morning, which had been ripping over the last few weeks until today. I think it is going to shave some earnings off of Apple, and it gives more ammo to the analysts who've been bearish on the stock for ages. That said, yes, this is going to surprise you. But uh, while you could try to trade it, I think it's going to be a loser to trade. I still think you should own it. Now, I don't love the ruling, though. Nobody's putting a gun to your head, though, and making you use Apple's ecosystem. I want to say it's bad for business, but really it's bad for Apple and good for third-party developers that want to make money selling apps. So you're going to be looking for number cuts in the out years, even perhaps from the bulls. And that's something that this stock, even if today's dramatic five point decline, can really afford. Monday could also bring the beginning of a serious backlash against President Biden's actions this week. to Try to get more people vaccinated in this country. Higher fines for no mass, ocean enforcement forcing federal employees to get their shots or get tested every week. I am totally on board with this stuff, as you know. We need to wipe this thing out, even if it requires a little coercion. But the anti-vaxxers and the leaders in Washington will whine about how this is a violation of their civil liberties. Never mind that we've had vaccine mandates for a century. I never heard about violations of civil liberties before. Away from politics and the legal system, it's going to be a pretty quiet week. Monday, Palo Alto Networks hosts an analyst meeting. I think this long-term, uh, time Kramer fave cybersecurity firm will roll out some new products that will help them keep taking market share. Remember, cybersecurity is one of my favorite themes for this moment, along with financial empowerment via technology. As exhibited by the dramatic run in the stock of a firm today, that's the king of buy now, pay later, this stock was up 31 points or 34 percent. CEO Max Lepchin explained the story to us just last night. And while the move today seemed exaggerated, you know that a firm has now joined Square and PayPal in the pantheon of financial tech. Has Zoom video been overly punished in its inability to dramatically raise numbers when it reported last week? I think they'll make a pretty really compelling case to own the stock at what's known as their Zoomtopia conference. All virtual this year makes sense, given their business, right? Zoom needs to show us it can grow aggressively with new products and acquisitions. Without that, I'm going to tell you, I think the stock may even give back its gains that it's had in the last couple of days. After the close Monday, a Unsung Warrior Oracle reports, and this stock has really had one of the most amazing rallies in the entire market. It's up nearly 40% this year. Uh, that's soaring much faster than its growth rate. Now, that might not matter, though. It, it's got a halo after years of being in the doghouse. The halo comes from its inexpensive nature versus its incredibly expensive colleagues. Did you know that Crocs, that quirky shoe company, has seen its stock jump 130% this year? 130%? Pretty extraordinary. But it's consistently beaten the numbers. Why? How about we find out when the company an- hosts an analyst meeting? It's a very unknown company, but if not I think it's going to be well attended and-, and cause earnings estimates to be bumped on the next day. You know what? I think the same thing was going to be happening with Cisco after its analyst meeting Wednesday. A Morgan Stanley analyst just it, downgraded the stock yesterday. Don't you think that's gutsy? Given that excellent set of orders when it last reported, I bet the bulls win this battle. I don't want to be that downgrading analysts at the end of this day. Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, falls on Thursday. That is traditionally a day where companies and analysts are loath to do anything major. But the federal government releases retail sales numbers. And if they're weak, you know what? You can go blame COVID and buy some stock of Amazon. That's always the default stock to buy, right, when brick-and-mortar stores show weakness. How about forward retail sales? For that, I look at University of Michigan sentiment numbers that come out Friday. Have people grown more pessimistic because of the resurgence of the virus? Let's parse the numbers. Finally, maybe because my wife Lisa and I have finally found one program we both like, Apple TV Plus' Ted Lasso, I'm going to listen in on the Manchester United Conference Call. I believe that soccer, or football as they call it over there, could be experiencing a resurgence of interest globally, and we lack ways to invest in it. There's no better way to own a piece of the Premier League's premier team, Man U, Especially after they just resigned superstar Jamie Tar, uh, superstar Cristiano Ronaldo. The bottom line: given the nature of September, you have to expect next week to feel less like this morning's decent action and more like the ugly sell-off of this afternoon. Even as there may be some individual price spots. Yep, I don't want to be a downer here, but as I keep saying, I need you to expect some brutal days ahead and don't get sucked into those morning rallies. Let's go to less in Oregon. Less. Hi,
1: how are you? I appreciate you providing a master class in market analysis, uh-huh. and I really
3: enjoy that. Ah, uh, you're very kind. Of I hope the air's getting better there. I know it's been very okay. tough to breathe. Yes, read. it is.
1: I do but, have a que- I know, this time is of the essence, I have a question about Ford. Sure. They're closing two assembly plants in India. They're taking a 1.7 net uh, billion write off. How's this going to impact their uh, going forward okay. earnings? That's this was the stock went down uh, on you know, it. You know,
3: Les, the stock went down on it. It should have gone up on it. Why? Because they've lost $2 billion in the last five years before. $2 billion. It's the last part of the world that they're losing money. That means that the numbers in 2022 should go up. But no, the street didn't get it. They're wrong. Les, you and I are right. Next week, they bring some individual bright spots. But on the whole, remember, it's September. you got to expect ugliness. I'm not going to stop with this theme until we get to the first two weeks of October. And then we continue it again. On May Bunny tonight, RH reported second quarter results this week, giving you a fresh top and bottom line beat. So what does the fashion forward furniture retailer plan to continue to dominate the home decor space? And believe me, I think it's going to. I'm getting the latest from the CEO, whom you know I am quite fond of and think is very good. Then September is known for being a tough month for stocks. But do the technicians back up this theory? I'm going to go off the charts, help you navigate this thing. And from cables to processors and, of course, semiconductors, Avnet is supporting the tech world one piece at a time. Right after a post slump, are investors getting a buying opportunity in the arms dealer to the connected world? Wow. What does this shortfall in chips and supply chain problems mean for you? I'm getting the latest from the company's top friends. So stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets.
3: Even in an ugly week for the market, there were some huge winners. Take Kramer Fave RH, the Home Furnishings Team, formerly known as Restoration Harbor, which reported yet another blowout quarter on Wednesday. It said the stock flying, of course. Right now, RH is on fire. Sales up 40% from 2019. The last comparison for the pandemic, monster earnings beat. Even better, management raised the full-year forecast, despite all the supply chain problems that are playing against retail compadres. More importantly, RH has big plans. They want to be a luxury lifestyle brand. I think they're there already, but they're going to build out a whole ecosystem of guest houses, restaurants, residences in Aspen, Colorado, interior designs of private planes. They're gorgeous, trust me, and an RH-conceived yacht that is smashing. The stock's been a huge long-term winner of more than 1,800% over the past five years. I think it's got much more room to run, but don't take it from me. Let's check in with Gary Friedman, the bankable chairperson and CEO of RH, to learn more about the quarter and his big plans for the future. Mr. Friedman, welcome back to Mad Money.
5: Great. Thank you, Jim.
3: Gary, I'm going to do something that I just think I have to, because we're going to talk a lot about style for a second. But three years ago, I sat down with you, and you said I bought stock four times. You said this on air, four times, buying now. <laughs> Okay, so I looked at it. The stock was at 120. 120. I mean, you're a $700 stock. You told people what you were doing, which a lot of times well, I, I just think is incredible. And yet at the same time, I read the research. Many people think it, it can't keep going. Do you know they said the same thing back then? Why are they wrong? What don't they see?
5: Well, look, I think, Jim, when you're kind of creating a new market, you know, redefining a market, Um, you know, it's, it's uh, most, most people from the, look, from the time we're born, we're all taught to conform, right? We're taught to conform to conventional wisdom and other people's thinking. And we're taught to kind of look, look at the stars, not reach for the stars. So, you know, when you think about markets or um, the way, you know, companies are looked at, uh, there's more of a sense for what, what box do you fit in? Where do you conform? Who are you like? You know, we we're asked all the time, are you, are you like more like home Depot? Or are you more like William Sonoma? Are you like bed, bath and beyond who, who are you like? And, um, you know, when you're creating a new market, you're really unlike anyone else. You're, you're a little bit like the best of many people. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's hard to understand, uh, businesses like ours. And, you know, we, we you know, tell the team internally here, look, we we say leaders have to be comfortable making others uncomfortable because we're, we're taking people somewhere they've never been, doing something they've never done, seeing things they've never seen. Uh, so it's, you know, and I think the, you know, the other things that are, I think it's Warren Buffett that said this, you know, over the short term, the, the market is like a voting machine, but over the long term, it's like a weighing machine and things get weighed out accurately. So if you think about, We went public eight and a half years ago, I think on our S1, uh, you know, when we filed, we had less than a billion dollars in revenues. And we, I think we had somewhere around 70 or $80 million of EBITDA. Uh, And over the course of our journey, we, it's been a volatile stock because it, it tends to be misunderstood a lot. The story's misunderstood a lot. And it's also an evolving story, right? When you're innovating uh, and you're inventing, you know, there's constantly change. So it's, it's hard to kind of pin down, who are we like? You know, exactly what are we doing? It's not for familiar people. But the, but the most important people we have to focus on is not It's not really what Wall Street says about us. It's not what analysts say about us. Uh, it's especially not what the short sellers say about us. Oh, it it's really what the customers say about us, right? It's no. what the customers say about us. And the, and the customers are the most important votes if, you, if you're looking for votes.
3: OK, so let's talk about the customer. So, no. But when the customer goes to Paris, uh, a rooftop bar, uh, it, th- will I be able to go when this opens, have champagne and caviar bar and look at the Eiffel Tower? Will I be able to go to a 73 acre state in Britain from 1600, I and tour it? Because these are now things that I feel like have to be on my agenda if I'm going away.
5: Well, that's that's the point, right? It's it's, you know, how do you redefine experiences? How do you create spaces? We say in our company, we don't you know, we don't build retail stores. We create inspiring spaces that, you know, activate all of the senses. And, uh, you know, they're they're filled with fresh air and natural light. Um, uh, And, you know, we we call them galleries because they're artistic abstractions of home furnishings in a in a gallery setting. So it's it's you know, it's. There's a lot of art that goes with the science in our business. Uh, you know, we have integrated hospitality. We have, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, as you say, in, in Paris, we're going to have a champagne and caviar bar on the top floor that extends up into the rooftop. We're going to have a beautiful garden that has views of the Eiffel Tower. You know, what, you know, the first restaurant we did was in Chicago. And I think in the first year we had more than 100 wedding proposals. Now, if you just stop back and think about that. In the beginning everybody said who wants to eat in the middle of a furniture store and you know we said look we don't build furniture stores we build inspiring spaces and you have to come see it to understand it and i think most people that have been critics of the company or don't get it it's because they haven't lived it they haven't experienced it i think about every person that's been short our stock or wrote a negative you know article on our stock they've never come to visit this company. They've never talked to us. Um, You know, they just form their own opinions uh, out of kind of a lack of information and truth. So um, the great thing is you're going to be able to go to Paris and, uh, you know, enjoy champagne and caviar on a rooftop with views of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, You're going to be able to go to Einho, which is a 73 acre estate built in 1615 and designed by the legendary uh, English architect, Sir John Soane, who there's this Sir John Soane Museum uh, in, in London that's actually his original house. He's one of the most inspiring architects uh, in, in history. Um, and you're going to see products and you know, you know, you're going to experience our business in a way you've never experienced it before. And it's not even how many people go to, go to the gallery at Einhoe. Uh, okay. Which is, by the way, about an hour and a half outside of central London. Uh, you know, and it's a 73-acre estate and a 55,000 uh, 55, square foot, you know, beautiful, you know, castle-like building. Um, it's really, it's going to be about the 40 to 50 million people that will see it on our website. You know, we'll we'll do. A, We'll do it on the cover of our source book and mail it to millions of people. It'll be written about Are are people
3: wealth. There are that many wealthy consumers right in UK. You talk about that in California. There are that many people doing that well right now. We all hear about how things aren't that great, But the destination now I have signed out a lot. You're talking about major commitments by people and they have that money. Or, as you said at the end of the call, it's their goal to do better. It's their goal to get better stuff. That's what people do.
5: Sure. You sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's the, you can look at history and, and humans always aspire to better quality. Right. We, uh, and uh, you know, but, but you don't look, you don't build a long-term strategy based on, you know, short-term, you know, temporal, you know, interruptions in, in economies or anything like that. So, you know, people will say like, Oh, it's, it's, it's not doing that well in Europe right now. I mean, I, I got it. It's, it's a, you know, right now is just right now. You know, long-term visions and strategies uh, are are beyond right now. Right. So, right. you know, and, and right. I think when, when, people, you know, when people see what we're doing next, you know, I think they'll understand it. I mean, it's no different than, um, you know, we introduced RH1, right? And mm-hmm. it's our private jet that will be available for charter. Uh, it just ran in Architectural Digest. It's in the October issue. Uh, and they did a spread on, on a plane. OK, in Architectural Digest's history, I think they've only, I thought it was only one plane. Uh, and the, the, the Getty's plane, the Jetty in the 1980s, I heard that there was, they did another article, you know, four or five years ago on another plane. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, these, these pieces of the puzzle are helping right. us to kind of climb right. the luxury right. mountain, right? Establish right. RH as kind of an arbiter of, of taste and style, you know, in, in, in the world. You know, for, you know, as we like to say products, places, services, and spaces, you know, an ecosystem that kind of elevates RH as a, a thought leader, a tastemaker, and a placemaker. Uh, so it's, you know, there's a, a, there's a integrated strategy to all this. But until you kind of see it and understand it, I think for anybody that doesn't get it, You know, that's in the financial world that whether you're an investor or an analyst, I'd say come come visit us in Marin County, Uh, you know, come see the Center of Innovation and Product Leadership. Uh, But we don't we don't spend our time, you know, trying to convince people to love us. We know we do what we love with people that we love for people that love us. I know they're they're trying to cut me off. I'm not letting them
3: do it. I got to ask you one other thing. I keep hearing these guys are all owning supply chain. I asked my wife, why do we keep using RH? She goes, Jim, it comes in two to three weeks, no matter what. Everybody else I'm waiting six months for. You've been able to do that, too, right? You've mastered the supply chain.
5: Well, the good thing is, look, we, we own inventory. We're not one of the platforms that is just selling other people's right. goods right. and not carry inventory. We, we have right. a great competitive advantage from that, from that point of view. Um, but, but look, we, we face the same kind of challenges. Again, they're all kind of temporal issues. They're not long-term strategic issues. They're short-term you know, distractions. You've got to you know, stay focused on your long-term vision uh, right. To to create value long term. Right. So, they're, they're really giving um, me a rap,
3: Gary. I yeah, don't know what I, to do. You know that I I am always torn about talking to you because you did. You're look. I don't have bar. No, only Arno. If Arno would come one, you, you three, we all three of us would be able to figure this stuff out. You are a genius, my friend. You're a genius. All right, let's just leave it at that. Uh, well, you. Okay, you're a genius. That's you Gary Friedman, us. Chairman and CEO of R H. Four times he had bought below 100. Told us on air. And then he bought a fifth. It, no way. He's makes you a lot of money. The stuff just isn't great. He's also a money maker. Their money's back in.
4: Coming up, Kramer explains the reason for the season. Off the charts next.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
2: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
3: I've been warning you to steal yourself for a rough month because historically September has not been a good time to own stocks. There's only so much you can glean from the calendar. But any veteran trader knows that this tends to be a brutal month. How brutal? To answer that question tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of the legendary Larry Williams. He's a tremendous technician who's been trading stocks, futures and commodities since I was too young to drive Had a lot of pimples. He's written more than a dozen books created a host of indicators that we talk about all the time on the show. More than that, though, he's been on a roll for the last year and a half. Ever since the pandemic hit, he's done a terrific job of identifying opportunities, including the boldest bottom call I've, <laughs> I've seen last spring. Let's talk about September, though. If you like musicals, you can try to take your cue from the Fantastics. Try to remember the kind of September when life was slow and oh so mellow. But, but that's very hard to do because this is rarely a mellow month for the stock market. Of course, you can't just blindly follow the calendar. Sell in September and go away has a better track record than sell in May and go away. But it's not exactly a rigorous approach to the market. There's not even any alliteration. That said, you need to be aware that tons of traders pay very close attention to what I'm about to show you. Very close attention to the seasonal patterns. And they're all gritting their teeth for difficult periods because of what I'm about to show you. Unless, of course, they're short sellers, in which case they're licking their lips in anticipation. Ordinarily, I wouldn't be too worried about this kind of thing. But when you're, you layer in the Delta variant-induced, uh, you know, look, it's causing a slowdown, let's face it. And then, but you also have the fear of the Federal Reserve and the possibility of a debt ceiling debacle in Washington. September sell-off, let's just say, it can easily become what I call a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, first, let's circle back to the seasonal pattern and take a look at how the S&P 500 futures contracts have been traded historically. Here's what the seasonal pattern looked like 20 years ago. Yes, 2001. Using only data that we had from the year 2001, this is what Williams calls the true seasonal pattern. He points out that even back then, the charts were warning you that September would be a rough time for the S&P. Obviously, we had no idea particularly how bad it would be, but it tends to be a dark period for the market, even when we don't get hit with a a horrifying terrorist attack. 20 years ago, the seasonal pattern showed weakness in September, and it predicted that weakness would accelerate on nine seventeen. In retrospect, holding until the 17th would have been a mistake. But if you sold at the beginning of that 12th September, your portfolio would have sidestepped a lot of value. I mean, the traders among you probably want to do that, or you might want to just lighten up and raise some cash. That's what we've been doing for the charitable trust. This is too compelling. How does the seasonal pattern look like today? Now we're going to look at 20 years of additional data to what I was showing. Check it out. This is what Larry's true seasonal pattern looks like today. It's incredible how it holds up. This is using numbers from 1998 to 2001, to the present. Honestly, the pattern hasn't changed all that much. Williams points out that the optimal seasonal sell point continues to be the same around September 17th. Believe me, on the 16th, you're going to see a lot of selling because of what I'm showing you right now on the 17th. This is when prices tend to experience a precipitous drop. If history is any guide, there's a high probability this market will get hit with a meaningful Meaningful decline at the end of this month, which is one reason it's been, I think, so soggy for the last week. This stuff is known by a select few. I'm now I'm giving it to everybody. If that's the case, when is the best moment to sell in September? Now I'm going to take a look to show you a table, which shows how you would have done if you had sold the S&P 500 on the last trading day of September through the 15th to last trading day. I know it's a little uh, tricky, but I'm going to show this to you and walk you through it. In this particular method, he's using a $2,500 stop-loss order and exiting on the first profitable opening after being in the trade for two days. So this is uh, pretty short term. I'm going to move over from this. If you sold on the 15th to last trading day—okay, she's so you're looking at the bottom—early in the month and used this method, you've historically lost a lot of money. Williams points out that the optimal moment to sell the S&P on the 7th on the to last trading day of September— for 23 years, this is it right here. This is when you do it. 23 years has been a winning move. 23, that's extraordinary. Now, if you sold it on the 10th, let me get this so it's clear. If you sold it on the 10th to last trading day or the 8th to last trading day, you're bracketing this, okay? Those moves had a 90% accuracy. But the sweet spot is still the 7th to last, which translates to September 22nd this year. That table only shows how you would have done if you only held it for a few days. It doesn't tell us very much. It's more important to know if this pattern has legs, right? So what happens if you sold on the 7th, the last trading day of September, and then held that trade for longer? Take a look at this table, which shows how you would have done if you pushed your luck and held the trade for 1 to 15 days. Williams points out that when you hold this trade for a longer period of time, you're sacrificing accuracy in order to pursue greater profits. If you bought the S&P futures only a couple of days later, you would have been up 866. OK, there it is. But that trade has worked every year for twenty three dollars. So you can make this much on twenty five. This that much every year. That's worked. OK, twenty three straight. Years. Now, if you hold the trade for longer, say 14 sessions down here, your average gain on winning position was three thousand ninety two dollars. But you only made money in 16 out of 23 years. Get the trade off. All told, if you did this every year for that whole period, you would have had more gains if you only closed the position after 14 trading days. So Williams thinks it's worth the trade-off. I really want you to know this if you're really interested in trading. In short, the late September sell-off clearly has legs. Were to go back to the Fantastics, try to remember, and if you remember, then follow, follow. Here's the bottom line: the charts as interpreted by Larry Williams suggest that the rest of September could be even uglier than the month so far. If history's any guy, then the last week of September might be particularly brutal. So I need you to steel yourself. Because like Mr. T, as Clubber Lang in Rocky Three, this legendary technician's prediction is ping. Santo in Florida. Santo! Booyah! Mr. Kramer, oh, good evening, Oh, Santo, sir. how you been? How you been? All right, so a special memory to Engine 39 Atlantic. Sixteen Fire Department, New York City. Oh man! Thank Where you is. for everything you do. Thank you. My uh, stock I'm interested in is uh, Power School, PWSC. And your thoughts on uh,
1: maybe? Uh, what do you think about it?
3: PWSC. I have looked at this. This is one that we've actually you know done some stuff on. Um- the problem is that it's another cloud-based one. This time it's for education. But it's good. I'm not gonna tell you it's great, because remember if it's cloud-based then I'm gonna send you to I'm gonna send you to Salesforce. I'm not gonna outthink it. But thank you for everything you do for the city. Alright, the chart suggests that the rest of September could be even uglier than we've had so far. I need you to know this stuff. Brace yourself last week of September could be the most brutal, or you can profit on if you really are very, very nimble My much more mad money head, including my exclusive with a company that pre-announced better than expected earnings, that's Avnet. How are the tight supply chains impacting the 100-year-old electronic component supplier? I'm going to talk to the CEO. Then tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I'm looking back on that fateful morning that changed our country forever. From a personal point of view, I was downtown at the time. And all your calls rapid-fire in tonight's edition of The Lighting Round. So stay with Kramer. Lately, we've seen company after company pre-announce bad numbers due to supply chain issues. So we got to do, what do we do? Well, how about we check in? with a company that has the total finger on the pulse of the tech supply chain. And I'm talking about Avnet, the world's largest supermarket of technology, generating both finished hardware and electronic components, including ones that are in short supply, like semiconductors. Last month, Avnet reported some excellent numbers, along with much better than expected guidance, because this is a terrific environment for them, but also because they're a great company. Now, though, the stock has pulled back, along with everything else in the last few weeks. to the point where it's now selling for less than nine times this year's earnings estimates. I've seen this stock as high as 18 times in my career. So could this be a Perfect Bargain. Let's take a closer look with Phil Gallagher. He's the new CEO of Abnet to get a better read on the state of the tech supply chain and on Abnet itself. Mr. Gallagher, welcome to Man Money.
1: Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. We appreciate the opportunity. And and by the way, I saw yesterday's news. I wish you all the best in in your next chapter as well.
3: You are so kind. Thank you so much. (laughs) You and I are old hands in these things. We've got to stay at it. You've been 37 (laughs) years at Abnet. Congratulations. And here's what I want to know. No one knows more about supply chain issues than Avnet. We keep getting snowed, Phil. We hear supply chain. Every company uses an excuse to miss the numbers. But you worked in partnership with a lot of companies. Would it have been possible if people said, you know what, I'm going to go to Avnet, work this through ahead of time, well before this, that they wouldn't be bemoaning themselves and their supply chain issues?
1: Yeah, Jim, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, we're, we're, for sure, we're seeing a lot more opportunities, even than we were prior to the constraints But you're right. The the pullback, you know, um, in inventory, I'll just say, and in managing inventory and these liens and all those types of things that were going on kind of preempted where we are today that's exasperated with the COVID issues we've all faced in the last several years. So we're going on several years. So yeah, the answer is yes. We believe, you know, we're in the center of technology supply chain. That is what we do. And I would venture to say that customers that are dealing with us are in better shape than ones that weren't. But it's Providing a great opportunity for us and a lot of new customers and suppliers that are really in, engaging our supply chain architects to help them out.
3: Right, so, what are the largest companies that would use that, that Are The companies that we would know, uh, brand name companies, companies that are in uh, large industrials.
1: Yes, sir. The, and we don't typically mention their names, but you're you're you look around your house, whether it be your thermostat. Uh, by the way, your your car, which I know you want to talk about. Yes, I do. That's uh, now going your next. Grill. I know, you know, your your sub-zero refrigerators to your tractors to your uh, home automation, building automation. uh, It's really all around us, Jim. So, yeah, they're all household names. Big networking companies, you might guess. Uh, Big 5G companies, uh, maybe in San Diego, you might guess. So they're all pretty much household names. You just don't see us because we're behind the scenes you know, supplying the parts and the chips and the components that go inside those branded products.
3: All right. So let's say I saw t- today Toyota at the lower numbers, you know, Ford lower numbers, Jim, lower numbers. Let's say I had been like a Chinese company and said, you know what, Phil, I don't want to do just in time. I want to do just in case. Would the dialogue be different with these companies that are now pre-announcing weaker numbers?
1: Yeah, I think the dialogues are now in parallel uh, changing and, and evolving right. Picanha, some of those tier one companies we might may not that you just mentioned Toyota Ford we may not be dealing with directly but we're dealing with a lot of their subcontractors right. particularly as they get more into the uh, 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 entertainment systems in the car the mirrors all the things that are electronic we're dealing a lot with the second third tier guys now we're starting to get calls from the tier ones okay because again you have 50 cent one dollar microchip controllers holding up $50,000 cars, $100,000 cars, 150000 cars. So there's, there's a, uh, a transformation, I believe, uh, that's going to happen. And like I said, we're getting calls from not just in the automotive, you know, mm-hmm. but other OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, that can't get what they need, and, and they're miss, you know, calling some misses in their numbers.
3: Now, the but it's not going to change overnight. But you have many, many other business lines. that We just keep hearing about chips because, I mean, look, look I love the uh, high-performance computing. Yeah, I love what AMD does, what NVIDIA does. But we're talking yeah. about these full-featured chips. Now, in the end, many of them are made, say, by Global Foundry. Well, you can't call right. Global Foundry, can you, and jump the queue? No, no, or,
1: or TSMC that's right. moving in Arizona, by the way. But, you know, uh, no, and that's the issue. And that's where a lot of these companies got caught short. They might have not had as much electronic content in their products prior. And they didn't change their supply chain uh, uh, methodologies and went to the, the lean and, you know, and then kind of will bang the fist on the table to get more product. And it just doesn't work that way. I mean, uh, y- y- you can't jump the line. And, and, and there's 12, 18, 24-month periods of cycle time, okay, from the time an order's dropped to when it can be shipped, when there's constraints. Because you just can't bring, and our suppliers, and you've had them on, you, you know, mm-hmm. you've had one on recently Intel, some others, they just can't change the production that quickly. They're adding capital, but you're talking 18 to 24 months before you see any throughput. Uh, through but here's my
3: problem. I'm a CEO, OK? I, I, I want to deal with what I make. I don't want to deal with what's inside what I make. But if I were to call Phil and say, listen, I've been 100 years, my company has worked with your company 100 years. Will you show us how to do this? Show us what supply chains mean. This is not a new environment. I mean, isn't it better that they do it with you than if they try to figure it out and invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel themselves?
1: Well, I, I obviously have a biased view. The answer is yes. And and we're getting those calls. We have what we call supply chain architects. That's what they do. And they, they come out of supply chain backgrounds. And we actually help these customers and suppliers. Because a lot of our suppliers, they, they're good at manufacturing, right? They're good right. at marketing their products, maybe designing their products. But they'd rather use us to go drive the supply chain piece because we're right in the center of it. We're dealing We are a great aggregator, Jim. So we're we're dealing with thousands of forecasts on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that we take in electronically. We manage it. We put the analytics around it. Then we send the feeds to the supplier upstream, as I like to call it. Then we say, okay, what kind of buffers do we need? What kind of buffers are we willing to invest in together so we all get a fair ROI? And you'd be surprised it's not really that much, particularly the cost of capital today and the cost of inventory. Having a little bit of a buffer is not a bad thing. Inventory. Kind of through the 80s and 90s got, you know, it's kind of a bad word. Inventory is not a bad word if it's good
3: inventory. Right. Right? Well, yeah, it was bad because it meant that you were sloppy. And you were using up a lot right. of your working capital. And so, therefore, you were right. a poor manager. Uh, it, but thing, the world changed. And i uh, i got to tell you, I, I am so grateful you came on. You know, our show had a very long relationship with AdNet. Yes. I want to reinstitute it because you guys have the pulse on everything. I feel badly that we dwelt <laughs> so much on semis because there's so many things that you guys do. But you're going to come back, Phil, and we're going to learn more from you, Okay. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. Hey, go birds, Jim. Go birds, absolutely, Atlanta. (laughs) Hey, my friend Chuck Robbins, and I call him a friend, he is an Atlanta guy, and his supply chain works very well. I wonder why. Bill Gallagher, CEO of Abnet. May have money's back after the break. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him.
4: The lightning round is coming up next.
3: (laughs) It is time. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Let's keep that. Come to the lightning round question. Let's start with Mark in Wisconsin. Mark, Jim, I've got a cryptocurrency miner up in toronto their ticker symbol is h-u-t name of the company's hut eight i'd appreciate yeah, your a blockchain company Their diamond does a dozen unfortunately i i wish it were more special than that i don't think you have anything proprietary with that company go buy some ethereum michael in illinois michael booyah jim what's up my ticker is- D-V-A-X. You know, I like this company. You know, I like companies that are involved in anything that's uh, uh, what I call personalized cancer, personalized immunology. And that's one. I'm I'm going to Jose in California. Jose. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, thanks
5: for all that you do, and thanks for taking my call. Sure. So this company went public recently, has extremely high institutional ownership with an incredible list of clients like Microsoft, Netflix, and McDonald's. Now, I listened to our earnings last night, and the CEO the interview earlier today, and
3: I'm pumped that I got in 16. Let me know your thoughts on Sprinkler. Oh, boy, that was a direct listing, and uh, people didn't like the quarter. Uh, I don't think you have enough. Uh, there, are, there are not enough companies that follow this to be able to get a true picture on it. That's part of the problem with having all these companies that have come public. Very hard to get a real ring on it. Alex of Pennsylvania, Alex. Greetings, Jimmy Cho from York, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so just like enough close to like Philly. Tar- What's up? I'm doing good, Jim. I hope you're doing good. I like the long-term growth prospects for a stock trading under 30 bones a pop. Buy, sell, hold. Ping identity. Look, I happen to like Ping very much. I not to like Cyber very much. But my recommendations are you do Palo Alto or you do CrowdStrike right now, okay? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The
4: Lightning Round. Is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer reflects on American resilience and acknowledges 20 years since the world changed forever. Next.
3: been a more beautiful day. When you ask people who were downtown on September 11th, people like me, that's always the first recollection they give you. I remember the glint on the Twin Towers, like any other gorgeous day. Never thought they were magisterial. They were just there. And then they weren't. In between the glint and the gone came a world of pain and hurt and death that's still with us except for the younger generation who either hadn't been born yet or were too small to understand what was happening when those planes crashed into the North and South Towers. Like pretty much everyone in the business, I learned of the unfolding tragedy from watching my late friend Mark Haynes on CBC. He pointed out it was no ordinary fire, no billowing smoke plume, no accidental replication of that B-25 that hit another tall building uptown back in 45. Well, at the time, the Empire State Building was enshrouded by fog. This time, as crazy as it sounded, it had to be delivered, something we knew for sure after the second crash. It was such a beautiful day. Honestly, what happened then still feels like science fiction. I was stuck in a lockdown at 14 Wall Street, not far, and all I could think was that if there were a couple more floors in those towers and they fell, maybe they'd take our building down, too. That or maybe one more plane could be heading our way or across the street from the New York Stock Exchange. No one knew anything that morning. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. And then it happened, not once but twice. I'd never heard a sound that loud. Then everything went black, not once but twice. Two terrorist made eclipses of the sun. After a time, the fire department let us out, and I recall it snowing, snowing hard, accumulating one, two inches. And I looked up to see how could possibly be snowing on such a clear day. And then I looked down at the dust that covered my shoes. I made out shredded pieces of research, mostly Dean Winter, an old brokerage house. I saw a recommendation of a couple of tech stocks I knew. But who else knew at the time what that snow contained? I knew enough later not to shine my shoes. Too eerie, too awful. I hitchhiked home, days by the day's event, still wondering if, if they really happened. What I remember next had more to do with the confusion than anything else. Somehow, the enormity of the situation just didn't hit home. Almost immediately, signs were everywhere in Manhattan, families looking for loved ones. It seemed inconceivable that unless you got out, you died. There had to be survivors, right? Survivors buried in the rubble or or people who had gotten out and simply hadn't been accounted for. There weren't. We didn't yet know of the tales of heroism, just the tales of horror. Only later did we hear about firefighters and police going upstairs when everyone else was trying to come down, climbing stairs to certain death. Who would do that? How about dedicated moms and dads and brothers and sisters who chose to die in the possibly vain hope of saving people they didn't even know? That was our Pearl Harbor in the global world in terror. I think many younger people may not understand how different the world was before September 11th. This was a pivotal moment. It changed everything. So I have a suggestion to the leaders of a country so sadly divided. We, my generation, all knew that December 7th, 1941, was a day that will live in infamy. September 11th, 2001, must also be remembered as infamous, even if the war still plays out with no victory 20 years later. There's a way to do it. We have a museum dedicated to that day right at ground zero, one so powerful and so poignant where those who don't know better can see what life was like the minute before the mass murders. And then after with horrific details, including a jumper room. Yes, a jumper room. I say whatever it takes to make sure people remember. Twenty years later we hear downtown's alive and well, some say better, all things considered, with beautiful gleaming buildings and thriving residential neighborhood. I say nonsense. Give me those nondescript white mountains, the ones that can glint, let alone clean, and all the people in them. Then and only then can there be an end to the sadness. I'm Jim Kramer. See you Monday. Up next, CNBC continues its coverage of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. A special edition of The News with Shepard Smith, live from lower Manhattan, starts now.